The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, Heritage. Welcome. Really glad that you are worshiping with us. I want to welcome the folks that are tuning in online, and I know we got people out in the overflow as well. Uh, if you were here last week, we had a beautiful Easter service. It was great to see, to see just hundreds of people gathered to, to celebrate the risen Christ. We got to see 17 people baptized last Sunday, which was incredible to see. Yeah, just really cool stories. And we looked at the resurrection, and we learned last week that the resurrection changes everything. We had stepped out of our study in Mark for one week, and we are in the Gospel of Luke last week. Today, until we are finished with the Gospel of Mark, we are back in Mark. We, we are going to finish this, this study now over the next three months. We're going to wrap it up in the, in the month of July. And then, rumor has it, in the fall, we're going to be getting into the book of Hebrews, which I'm very excited about that. So we'll keep you, uh, yeah, there you go, we'll keep you informed. I'm really excited about that and kind of doing the, the front-end work on that sermon series coming up. I'd encourage you today, uh, if you are here, uh, open up your Bibles to uh, Mark 10. We're, we're going to be uh, in verses 13 through 31 today. Uh, as we get into our text today, it's like interesting, you know, if you go back to the two weeks before Easter, we're kind of in this place where there's some really hard teachings of Jesus uh, so, so two sermons ago in Mark, Pastor Jeremy uh, kind of uh, unpacked Mark's teach or Jesus's teaching in the Gospel of Mark on hell, and it was a hard teaching. Some hard truths were spoken by Jesus. And two weeks ago, Jesus spoke about divorce, uh, and we unpacked that text, and and people consider that also some hard teachings from the lips of Jesus. And then today, uh, among other things, one of the things we're going to get into today is. Uh, the issue of wealth and money. And you know, people just love hearing sermons about money. So it's like three weeks in a row, we're preaching the stuff that just fills the seats, divorce, hell, and money. I'm glad you guys are here for all the seeker-friendly messages. But this is one of the, this is one of the benefits of teaching through the books of the Bible, uh, teaching verse by verse through ta- passages. We can't leapfrog hard things. We have, to, we have to sit under the authority of God's Word, and so that's what we're going to do today. I want to start just by reading the, the first 10 verses, uh, so 13 through verse 22. And they were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and he said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him you lack one thing go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me disheartened by the saying he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions two very well known scenes or interactions with jesus let the children come to me in scene one and in scene two Sell everything that you have and come and follow me. No doubt, if you've been in church for any length of time, you've, you've heard teachings on these, two, on these two scenarios, these two scenes with Jesus. And here in our passage, in, in these first ten verses, we see two scenes, two ways to come to Jesus. In the first way, we see, uh, we see these children coming to Jesus in humble dependence. I'm going to give you two points today for our sermon up front. Then everything else is going to fall under these points. The first one is we see, we see children coming to Jesus in humble dependence. People were bringing these children to Jesus, it says in verse 13. They weren't bringing themselves. They didn't have the capacity to bring themselves. They were fully and entirely dependent. They could do nothing for themselves. Luke's parallel account of this scene tells us that there, there were even infants being brought to Jesus. So what does Jesus do? Verse 16 says he took them in his arms. He received them. 
There's zero self-sufficiency in these kids. They are, as we have unpacked in previous weeks, on the lowest rung of societal status. They're fully dependent on Jesus in this moment. They could do nothing for Jesus, and yet Jesus, with love, receives these children. This is a picture of humility and dependence. And it's one way to approach Jesus. One way we can approach Jesus is in humble dependence. There's another way to approach Jesus that we see in the second scene. We see this rich young man, or as Luke calls him, a rich young ruler, approaching Jesus with prideful independence. He he runs up to Jesus and he kneels before him. This is a man, Mark tells us, with great possessions and and, and kind of in direct opposition to the dependent children that were carried to Jesus. This man brings himself to Jesus with all the bravado that a young man with wealth might have. It's a complete contrast from what we see with the kids and it immediately, as readers, causes us to recognize that these are sort of uh, and the opposites of one another. There is this dichotomy between the child uh, and, the, and the rich young ruler. He, he, he's dependent on no one but himself. And he doesn't just approach Jesus, he runs to him. And notice what he says when he speaks to Jesus. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal heaven? Uh, all these commandments that you just told me, Jesus, I have kept from my youth. And so the two times he speaks, he doesn't speak about the goodness of God or about the hope of the kingdom. He speaks about himself. So not only is he independent, he's prideful. I, 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 me, me, me. And this is a picture of pridefulness and independence. And this is also a way that we can, if we so choose, approach Jesus with prideful independence. And so as we work through our passage today, these are two headings that everything we're going to teach is going to fall under one of these two headings. Sometimes I'll orient you to which one, sometimes I won't. We're just going to read through the rest of the passage and we're going to, we're going to see where everything lines up, whether it's humble, a humble dependence or prideful independence. Would you pray with me? God, I just pray that as we get into your, to your word this morning, God, I just... God, I'm, I'm very aware of how insidious the sin of pride can be. And we don't even know it when we're pride, proud, proud or prideful. And God, I, I recognize that, uh, that the sin of pride resides in me so often. And so God, we don't want to elevate self today. We want to elevate you. We don't want to make much of ourselves. We want to make much of you And so, God, I pray that as we unpack this text, as we listen to the the words of Jesus, and as we reflect on our own lives, God, that you'd give us insight as to where we might be. Are we men and women who approach you in humble dependence? Or if we do an analysis or a diagnostic of our soul, are we guilty of prideful independence? God, I pray that by your Spirit, you'd give us insight into our soul. And where appropriate, God, would you bring conviction of sin, confession of sin, and repentance. So meet us in this place in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard it said, uh, as I was reading this week, that if, if you're aware of your humility, if it's something you talk about, chances are you're probably not humble. You know, like the guy who, who, who brags about the book he wrote on humility, and he tells you that you should read his book. Uh, but I've also heard, conversely, if you're aware of your pride, and you talk vulnerably and honestly about the sin of pride in your life, chances are you're more humble than you realize. Pride is an insidious sin. C.S. Lewis talked often about pride. He, he said it was the worst sin that there is. One time he was asked the question, what is the worst sin? Uh, and he said, the worst sin than any other is pride. And here's what he said. He said, this, there, he said, there's one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they themselves might be guilty of it. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves than pride. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. goes on to say this. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And then C.S. Lewis, he was actually giving a series of lectures on the, the, uh, 
the BBC during World War II in the aftermath of, of Germany's blitz of, of, of London. He was, he was asked by BBC to kind of speak uh, about, about these truths. And, and, and in a lecture, he spoke about these things. And he talked about uh, six uh, reasons why pride is the worst of all sins. It's a fascinating read. I'll give you a quick overview of how C.S. Lewis identified pride as the, the most insidious of all sins and six reasons why it is so. The first reason, he said, was that a proud person has to be better than everyone else. My old pastor and friend and mentor used to say, there is only room for one insecure leader at the top. I love that phrase. C.S. Lewis said, pride gets no pleasure out of having something only having more of it than the next man. Pride swells up when you deem that you are above others. Second thing, he says, a, pro- uh, a proud person is never satisfied. They're on this endless pursuit for more. Third thing, he says, that a proud person craves power. Uh, he, 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 he pontificated that, that pride is the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices can sometimes bring people together, but pride never does. Pride always drives people apart, according to C.S. Lewis. And then he talks about how pride makes you God's enemy. Listen to what he wrote. I thought this was so intriguing. He said, In God, you come up against something which in every respect is immeasurably superior than yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and on people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. The fifth thing he said about pride is that it makes you vulnerable to the devil. Pride is a virtue that we tend to appreciate in Western culture. Self-sufficiency is something that we tend to elevate in Western culture. And it, re- and it re- results in self-reliance. And self-reliance chokes out God. And it causes a spiritual cancer, according to C.S. Lewis. And lastly, he simply says you can be blind by your own pride. And so as we see these two depictions in our text today, we see the humble dependence of these helpless children. And as we see the, the uh, prideful independence of this rich young ruler, we see kind of this, these two dichotomies. And we need to kind of look at this and see the continuum and assess, as we listen to this text, we need to ask God, God, give me insight into where I might be this morning as I approach the text. For me personally, you know how it is. Every time you you, you take another step in your spiritual journey, uh, you you look back and you're always like, oh my goodness, I didn't know anything yesterday. I'm so glad I know so much more today. And then tomorrow, you arrive at tomorrow and you look at yesterday, you're like, oh, I was such an idiot yesterday. How come I didn't know anything yesterday? And that's been my experience for my entire spiritual life. Can't fault ourselves. My old friend Gary, the same guy that said the thing about insecure leaders, he talked about the spiritual life as sort of being like a journey that lasts the course of a lifetime. And imagine the spiritual life is the alphabet from A to Z. If you're at A, you're at A. Growth takes time. Growth, it doesn't, we, we can't force growth, we can't microwave it. We are where we are, and so we engage and we lean into our spiritual lives, and we participate with God wherever he has us. If you're at A, you're at A. If you're at C, you're at C. If you're at L, you're at L. And we just grow, and we put ourselves in a position to grow, and God, by his Spirit, he transforms us, and he molds us, and he makes us into the men and women we are. And with each new progressive step on our spiritual journey, as we look back, of course we're going to recognize the ways in which we didn't have it all figured out. Imagine when we stand before Jesus, and we see our eyes with with our life through those eyes. But when I look back at my journey with the Lord, it's like the longer I walk with with Jesus, maybe this is true of you, and the more I study Scripture, and the more I'm exposed to just good theology and good teaching, the bigger God gets. Have you noticed that? The longer you walk with God or the longer I walk with God, the bigger He gets, and the bigger God gets, the smaller I get. And I think the bigger God gets and the smaller we get, and that's appropriate, the more pride has less and less territory to claim as its own. The more we recognize that God is actually God and I am not. And there's not a lot of place for pride to live in that equation. The challenge is that pride is, as I said earlier, in our culture it's treated as a virtue. Think about it. In our culture, whether it's American culture, Western culture, being first is celebrated. Everybody wants to be first. And again, I'm being very simplistic here, and I recognize there's lots of nuance to this conversation. But for the sake of argument, in our culture, being first is celebrated. Being self-sufficient is the goal. In our culture, independence is, is a value. And yet, at the very last verse in our text, 
Jesus sort of summarizes the intent of everything we read today, and he says, in the kingdom of God, the first will be last, and the last will be first. So let's take a a little closer look at the text that we read, and then we'll unpack the following verses, uh, 23 through 31. I want to remind you, as we jump back into Mark, we've been out for two weeks, that uh, the, the structure of the book, we've, we've sort of said from the beginning that Mark is, is in kind of in three acts or three different uh, stations. There's the first seven and a half uh, chapters of Mark. They're answering the question, who is Jesus? And then in this middle section, between the middle of chapter 8 and through chapter 10, they're, they're helping us to see who do, who do you say that Jesus is? And we're, we're getting these tough teachings of Jesus. That's where we are today. And then beginning in chapter 11 at the triumphal entry, when Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, we'll begin to see how, how Jesus became king or how Jesus became Messiah. So we're nearing the end of Act 2. And all along the way, as Jesus has been sort of teaching and instructing his disciples, often some of these hard teachings, he's made it a practice of pulling children to himself and using children as sort of illustrations or metaphors for these larger truths. In fact, if you go back to chapter 8 or 9, or I think it was chapter 8, when Jesus comes off the Transfiguration Mount, and he encounters this boy with an unclean spirit. This is a child that's sort of in the center of this, this teaching that Jesus has with his disciples. And he sees that he delivers this boy from an unclean spirit. And there's this picture that when the boy seizes and falls to the ground after the, the, the demon is delivered from him, the, the, the image of the text is that he was as a dead man. And then, and then he came back to life as Jesus grabbed his hand. And there's this sort of picture utilizing this child that's been delivered of the new life that Christ offers. And then as we journey into chapter 9, we saw this depiction of, of Jesus where he takes a child and he brings a child among his, his disciples because they were arguing over who was the greatest. And, and Jesus puts a child on his lap. And as again, chi- children have the, the lowest sort of status in society. And Jesus is saying, unless you can like embrace a statusless existence, when you can do away with the pride that wants you to be the greatest, when you can learn to embrace and receive a child and, and live in that sort of world, then, then you'll be uh, understanding what, what life is like in my kingdom. And then a little later on in child, chapter 9, Jesus said, if, if you cause a child to stumble, it, it's better to have a large millstone wrapped around your neck and for you to be thrown into a, a lake. And Jeremy unpacked that text. And so we, he's been using children all along, but what he's, what he's doing in using children is he's illustrating again and again this kingdom ethic that in the kingdom of God, the first will be last and the last will be first. And so let's look again at 13, verse 13. Is he, is he yet again, is utilizing children to teach a truth about his kingdom. They are bringing children to him that he might touch them. Now, this was a common practice in Jewish custom. If you go back to, like, uh, even to b- the book of Genesis, where, where the patriarch Israel, he laid hands on his, 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 his grand, grandchildren and he blessed them. And so this practice of blessing children was common to Jewish culture. Uh, and so here, these people in this region, they're in the Jude- region of Judea, they're, they're just doing something that was very popular and, and a common practice in Jewish uh, culture, and so they're bringing these children to the rabbi, to Jesus, to, that he might bless them. This is moms and dads and probably big brothers and big sisters that are bringing these children and these infants to Jesus, and they have joy in their hearts as they see Jesus with love in his eyes take these children on his lap and lay his hands on them and speak blessings into heaven over their children. Jesus wasn't doing this to, just because it was like an obligation of his. He had genuine love and care for these children, and it was beautiful. And as these parents and these siblings are, are watching Jesus love these little babies, They see love in his eyes. Now, this is God in the flesh. Can you imagine the incredible experience that was to see Jesus with genuine love for these children that could really offer nothing of value to him or to society, but Jesus is loving them. He models this for us. But then we see that the disciples begin to rebuke. They're concerned about the demands that are upon Jesus. They don't likely dislike children or hate children, but these families are crowding around Jesus as we have seen through his entire ministry, and it's a drain, it's a demand on Jesus, and so they, they, they're telling these people, hey, you need to just leave him alone, we're, we're heading to Jerusalem, we got big plans, the last thing the Messiah needs to worry about are these sort of throwaway, forgettable children that live in Judea. But when Jesus saw it, it says in verse 14, he was indignant, he was, he was indignant. And, and that's a strong word, that word indignant. It's, it's, it's the only time in all of the New Testament where we see that word. It's a combination of two words. Uh, the first word is much. The second word is to grieve. So as Jesus sees his misguided disciples interfering and rebuking children, he has much grief in his heart. He is indignant. 
And so in direct contrast with the treatment of children by his disciples, look at what Jesus does in the second part of verse 14. He says, no, no, no. You don't get it. You, you don't understand my heart. Let the children come to me. Don't hinder them, for such belongs to the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is elevating those who come to him in humble dependence. And, and this is the larger truth that is being conveyed here. And this is as we sit and understand, how do we apply this to our lives? This is Jesus saying to anybody who wants to come to him, we are to come to him in humble dependence. So that's like a general truth that's taking place here. But there is also a specific truth. There's a specific context that's happening here, and that's Jesus' love for children. We can't just skip over that like allegory. That's something that also speaks into our context today as well. Jesus has a real love for children, and it's on display here, and it's been on display in other places. We've seen it throughout the Gospels. We've seen Jesus speak with joy of a mother at the birth of her child. We, we've heard Jesus speak about how a father is to cuddle with their children in Luke eleven seven. We've, we've seen the attentiveness of, of loving parents and what that is supposed to look like in the home in Matthew 7. And throughout his ministry, Jesus has modeled love for children, whether it was raising the, uh, a child from death or, or healing a child or delivering a child from demonic oppression. Jesus has cared for children throughout the Gospels. He's modeled great love for them. And in so doing... In a culture that didn't value children, Jesus is valuing children and he's upholding their personhood. He's elevating children. There are no such thing as throwaways in his kingdom. We've talked in recent weeks about the way in which children were viewed in this culture. And we said the, the, an analogous comparison in our culture, since we tend to really elevate kids in our culture, maybe the th who are the throwaways in our culture? And we talked about maybe it's the undocumented immigrant among us or the felon behind bars, or the transient living in the Bear Creek Parkway. These are the people we tend to view as throwaways. And this would be the kind of people that would be brought to Jesus. And if we tried to rebuke these people and say, get away, felon, get away, illegal immigrant, get away, homeless person, Jesus has better things to do, he would rebuke us. And he'd say, you don't understand the value of the kingdom. There's no throwaways in my kingdom. As I was doing a little bit of research on the Roman Empire at this time, I mean... Literally, infanticide was legal. Fathers in this time in the Roman Empire had ultimate authority over their households. And there's examples in different writings of fathers who could choose to literally kill a child upon birth if it wasn't the gender that they wanted. And it was entirely legal. And I even think about King Herod. I think oftentimes when we, we approach the Christmas season and, and we read the text about where, where Joseph received a dream or a, a message from an angel where he was able to leave and take his baby Jesus and Mary down to, to Egypt to avoid the King Herod's troops. We read over that because it's just part of the Christmas story. But can you imagine the actual moment in human history when soldiers went throughout the region around Bethlehem, pounded on doors, kicked in doors, walked in and threw mothers aside and fathers aside and grabbed helpless infants and one-year-olds and two-year-olds and drug them out inside with, and with a sword, took the heads off and pierced the flesh of children because King Herod didn't want to have any sort of uh, competition for his throne? We, we don't often think about the horror of that mass slaughter that actually happened, but it also speaks to the way in which that culture viewed children. They were not valued. And this is the culture where Jesus is taking these children on his lap, and he's upholding them. And so there's lots of practical implications for us today. One we just saw on a video on the screen. There are children in Uganda that we have relationship with that we have a very real, practical, one-for-one -one opportunity to express love and to elevate the way in which we care for children as a church. Stop by the booth on your way out. That's a way. But there's other ways. I think sometimes as parents, I mean, looking at this picture of Jesus blessing children, it's a spiritual blessing. And I think as parents in uh, America today, this might not be your story. My experience has been we want to bless our kids. I think I've said in the past, if you want to grow a really large church, just have an awesome children's ministry that gives everything parents could ever want for their kids. Mascots, free stuff, uh, water parks, water slides, playgrounds. If you have a children's ministry that gives everything parents could ever want for their kids, you'll, you'll attract families from five counties because people want what's best for their kids. And I think sometimes in our culture, we mistake blessing our kids spiritually with blessing our kids physically or materially. 
And we want them in the best AAU team. We want them in the best schools. We want to give them every opportunity. So we, we throw money. We do everything. We'll drive. We will sell our soul to the devil for seven years, driving our kids all over the state so they can have opportunity to play baseball or travel with that. And I'm guilty of it too. I mean, I, I totally understand. We want what's best for our kids. And that's, that's a good thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But could it be that there's times in our life as parents, and I'm, and I'm speaking to myself as much as I'm speaking to you. Hey, Paul, could it be that there's been times in my job as a father that I've been more concerned about my children's athletic and academic and social success than about their spiritual condition? Could it be that I have failed to put my children on my lap and speak a spiritual blessing over their life because I've been too busy driving them to their next practice? I think so. And also, this isn't just for parents. Jesus didn't have kids. So if you're single here today and you don't have kids, there's a place for you. Jesus has no kids, but he's enjoying the beauty of family. He's loving on children. He's speaking blessings into their life. It's for all of us. And it's also us as a church. You know, my wife has been a children's ministry director for many years. We've worked in churches together. This is the third church we've been in together. And, and she, uh, <laughs> she's been very adamant. I remember one time we were at an elder meeting in my last church, and one of the elders, she was just sort of sharing a vision for the children's ministry. And one of the elders, a sweethearted guy, a good friend of mine, he made the mistake of calling our children's ministry child care. My wife's head literally exploded. It was crazy. It exploded. And she said, did you call it child care? It is children's ministry. And she just, you know, didn't rebuke him, but she kind of rebuked him. And it was really funny because my wife's kind of scary. And it was just hilarious. But the idea is like, you saw two weeks ago, right? On Palm Sunday, we had 120 kids up here. Last Sunday, we had like 220 kids in our children's ministry. Not, that's not child care. We're not, just, we're not just getting them out of the way so we can do real church in here. That's the church as much as we're the church. And the men and women that are giving up their time to sit here under the preached word, the men and women that aren't, that aren't, that aren't hearing the message today, that aren't able to sing, that are, that are serving and loving, loving children and, and doing everything they can to equip families, those are saints and every minute they spend in that classroom, whether it's changing the diaper of a toddler or it's teaching a class to a first grader or it's sitting down and helping an antsy fifth grader make it through class, whatever it may be, God is going to use that investment for his glory. And they're helping us as parents to be the chief disciplers of our kids. So there's practical application here. But then it's more than just a lesson on the dignity of children, though, isn't it? Verse 15, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And so then he makes this about what it means to be in his kingdom. One scholar said, No one will get into the kingdom of God unless he or she receives God's salvation like a child. No one. And when we think of, like, what's it mean to receive the kingdom uh, as a child? Uh, we often go to the, the awe and the wonder of children. I have a little grandson. He's almost two. And we've got the Right Now Media uh, uh, video library that our church gives, gives to anyone who wants it for free. And on the Right Now Media, there's a kids section. And in the kids section, there's these really cool worship videos. And Pat, uh, Mitch and I were chatting about this. There's one video of Shane and Shane, this, this worship band, this worship uh, ministry. They, they have a, a, a children's program called Worship in the Word. And these are, these are just awesome uh, worship-leading musicians. And in this, this little video series, they're singing scripture. And they've, they design it for children. And not 22-month-olds, probably like elementary-age kids. But my grandson watches it. When, I, when I'm home alone with him, we'll put on the worship in the Word. We've seen it a hundred times. And as soon as it comes on, he wants to be in my arms. And he just wants to sing. He wants to raise his teeny little hands. And he's, there's just, I don't know what it is. I swear that little, little, little 22-month-old, tender-hearted, pure-hearted little guy, um, he, he understands, I think, on some level, that there's something special about a time dedicated to exalting Jesus. I swear that he gets it. And there's just wonder and awe in his eyes, and I cry when I watch him. It's incredible to see that. And so maybe when Jesus is talking about how we, we are to come into his kingdom as children, maybe there's a part of that that is speaking to the, the wonder and the awe that we see in children. Maybe he's speaking to the childlike faith, the wide-eyed childlike faith and trust that doesn't ask a zillion questions, just believes in the goodness of God and the truth of God and just comes to him with open arms saying, I trust and believe. But I think there's more there's more to this than just awe and wonder and childlike trust. 
the use of the child here is conveying this essential truth, this helpless dependence. Kathy, you brought that up in our study a couple weeks ago about this. This is about help. Like, what, what Jesus is highlighting, it. these children, they were infants. They were helpless and fully dependent. And the men and women that get it, the men and women that enter the kingdom of God have a helpless dependence, utterly and entirely and completely dependent on our gracious God. Helpless dependence is necessary to enter the kingdom of God. And then we see in verse 16, Jesus took them up in his arms and he blessed them and he laid his hands on them. The kingdom of God belongs to the humble. And you and me are invited. We're invited to come to Jesus with humble dependence to get our pride out of the way. And so then as Jesus is setting out, we get into the next little section. This young guy runs up to him. Luke tells us he's a a rich young ruler. Mark tells us he's a rich young man. Teacher, what must I do? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we were speculating this week about what was in his heart. Was this a pure desire? Was he just really wanting to know what he needed? Was this an important guy who saw Jesus as another important guy, so he wanted to rub shoulders with an important guy? Was he networking? Was he, was he handing his business card to Jesus, saying, hey, Jesus, you're an important guy. You have lots of followers. Let's network here. Ultimately, he could have, been, uh, he could have had insidious motives. He could have had pure motives. We don't know, but he runs to Jesus. And then Jesus rebukes him for calling him good. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. And that's a confusing rebuke. I, didn't, I, I struggled to understand that. And as I unpacked and as I looked at some other, some other writings on this, the, the thing here is that this man didn't know Jesus. He wasn't in a position to call Jesus good. He didn't know Jesus. To the Jewish mind, only God was good and only God was worthy of being called good. And to use good in a, in a conversation with someone you don't know is careless. And, and it was probably seen as a cheesy act of flattery meant to win Jesus to himself as in, in, in an interpersonal way. I read this week that Jesus was attacking the man's shallow use of the word good to get him to think about what he was really saying with the purpose of elevating him to understand that Jesus really is God. And so to this guy's question, what must I do? Jesus gives him six commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, don't lie, don't defraud, honor your mother and father. And as a good Jew, this young man looks at his life in a very superficial way. He's like, I've never done any of those things. He wasn't aware of the way Jesus had deepened the implications of the law when he said if you, if you hate someone, you've committed murder. When he said if you look at someone lustfully, you've committed adultery. This man was confident in his superficial understanding of what it meant to keep these commandments. And, and is his answer like, oh, I've done this, Lord. It reflects his proud independence. This is an affluent man, a powerful man who had self-willed himself to success his whole life and then we see, and I, I think, in one of the most powerfully intimate exchanges in the gospel, we hear Jesus' response. Jesus looks at him. And he loved him. And he said to the man, you lack one thing. Sell all that you have, give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. Those four words at the beginning of verse 21 have, uh, have been heavy in a good way in my heart for many years. Jesus loved him. Jesus is not angry. He doesn't have hate in his eyes. He has love in his eyes. This is a tender act of love. Jesus speaks a hard truth into this man's life in love. This last Wednesday, as our high school students gathered, Pastor Jeremy taught. And we've been doing a series with our high school students over the last several weeks, and it'll take us into June, where we're, we're answering hard questions that the kids have asked to be answered. And the question the kids were asking this week was, how can, I, how can I pursue Jesus and be godly when my friends aren't? And Jeremy was unpacking that in a bunch of different ways. But one of the things Jeremy said this week about a good friend as he was teaching through the Proverbs, he said that enemies stab you in the back, but a friend will stab you in the chest. A friend aims at the heart in love. And they do so to your face. What a, a friend has the courage to look at you when you're being disobedient or foolish or arrogant or prideful and in love to speak a direct truth into your life even if it pierces your heart. That's what Jesus does here. He's being a friend to this man. And as I, as I look at this text, I tell you what, I, I'm, a, I'm the adult child of an alcoholic parent. And oftentimes if you've grown up in an alcoholic home, if one of your parents is an alcoholic, there's all these different roles that different 
siblings play. If you, any of you have grown up in a home where there's addiction, I was uh, the codependent in my family. Um, and I have codependent tendencies that are, are just deep, deep, deep within me. In other words, I'm a guy that, that loves to make allowance for other people's faults. I'm a guy that will clean up the messes of others. I'm a guy that will make a, a allowance for other people's inappropriateness, right? And so if I was in Jesus' shoes and I told this guy, hey, here's six things you have to do. Okay, you need to go sell everything, give to those in need, and come and follow me. And if the guy walked away dejected, because I'm codependent, I would run after him and I would say, hold on. Wait, how about you sell half your things? Let's work this out. And I would make it all about me and I would inject all my grossness into the conversation and I would feel, and I'd go home at night and I would, I would be more affected than him at his disobedience because that's just what a codependent does. So years ago, someone who's way smarter than me pointed me to this and said, no, Jesus loved him. For those of us that are codependent, it does not feel like love to let someone walk away in disobedience. For those of us that are codependents, it does not feel like love to let someone sit in the mess that their own foolish choices have created. But often the most loving thing we can do is that very thing. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do when someone in our life is being inappropriate or they're being destructive or foolish, the most, the most loving thing we can do when it's hard is to pull our hand back, our hand of protection, and, and step back and let them feel the full weight of their inappropriateness. Because guess what? When I'm cleaning up the mess all day long, I'm not letting them suffer the consequence of their choice and they never have motivation to confess, repent, and change. When I step back, in love, as hard as it is, parents, we know this, when we have kids that are disobedient or kids that are wayward or kids that are walking away or rebellious, when I step back and I let the person whom I love receive the full weight of the consequence of their choice, that is love. Jesus loved the man and he let him walk away. That's not the major point of the text, but it's a powerful implication of the passage. This guy came to Jesus. He was expecting some feat that he could accomplish on his own. With prideful independence, with an impressive religious resume, he approached Jesus saying, I know I can do one more thing. What's the one more thing I need to do? It was more about him than it was about Jesus, by the way. So what Jesus says, he says, no, it's nothing you can do. In fact, I want you to give away the results of all you've done. The prideful accumulation of all your hard work is getting in the way, Jesus said. It's not about your abilities, buddy. It's not about your strengths. It's not about your wealth. It's not about how moral you have been. Jesus struck at the very heart of the sin that resided in this man's heart. He was an accomplished man. And this took all of his accomplishments that he loved to put on display, and it buried them. It's not about what you can do, Jesus says. It's about your dependence on me. And so Jesus looks into the heart of this man. He sees the thing in this man's life that is sitting on the throne of his heart. Jesus isn't calling this isn't prescriptive of all Christians. Not every Christian on the planet says do this exact thing. Jesus was, was applying a very specific teaching into this man's life because he saw into the man's heart. Jesus is not calling every Christian to sell all their possessions. He's not calling every Christian to live uh, or, or take a vow of poverty because poverty does not deliver people from the love of money. Ask anybody who's poor. George MacDonald once said this. This is funny and interesting. He said, It is not the rich man only who is under the dominion of things. They too are slaves who have no money and are unhappy for the lack of it. The money the one has, the money the other would have, is in each case a cause of eternal stupidity. Jesus is seeking to tear down the idol in this man's life, and that's what he does. In his love for us, he will tear down the idols in our life that occupy, that occupy the place only he should possess. And so for the man, it was his possessions. His possessions, the accumulation of his accomplishments was in the place of Jesus. Maybe that's you today. For another, though, it might be social positioning, your status, your reputation. That might be the thing that's on the throne of your heart, that's in the place of Jesus. For another, it could be the passions of their life, the things they just love to do that have taken precedence and preeminence in their lives. For others, it might be a person or the hope of a person that occupies the place in your life. Maybe it's a leader who's captivating and they lead you away from Jesus. Maybe it's a child who has become the idol that your whole life bends around. Maybe it's a significant other or the hope of a significant other. Disheartened by the saying in verse 22, this man went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. That word disheartened is a, is a graphic word. Jesus used that word uh, in the gospel of Matthew when he was talking about storm clouds. 
He's talking about it becoming overcast in the anticipation of a storm. You've seen that when, when a sky grows slowly dark in the anticipation of a storm. That's how this word is used in another place by Jesus. And so the scene here, as this man is listening to this hard teaching coming from Jesus, and, and as Jesus tells him, you're going to have to sell all your stuff, bro. This guy, he's, he's, doing, he's, got a, he's got a calculator in his mind. And he's beginning to connect the dots. And slowly, the realization spreads across his face as his face darkens that he cannot give up that thing. And so he slowly grows disheartened. And he walks away dejected. And even as he walked away, he was loved by Jesus. And so we see how these two scenes end. One, when it comes to those who are uh, approaching or coming to Jesus with humble dependence, it ends up with them wrapped in the loving arms of Jesus, the object of his affection, blessed by God himself. Those in this scenario who came to Jesus with humble dependence are in the arms of Jesus receiving his love. And those who came to Jesus with prideful independence end up turning their backs on Jesus, walking in rebellion in pursuit of their own desires. Who do you want to be? In the kingdom of God... Jesus tells us the first will be last and the last first. And so, these are the two ways. Come to Jesus in humble dependence or in prideful independence. And then here in the remaining text, Jesus sort of unpacks what it means, the implications of both approaches are unpacked and what it means for us to follow Jesus. And so, first, Jesus spells out the dangers and the disadvantages of wealth. And here's where the hard teachings of Jesus come into play. Look at verse 23 through 25. And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I know there's been lots said about the eye of the needle and the camel, lots of teaching and preaching and illustrations about gates and all that sort of stuff. Listen, this was an idiom that was popular in Jewish culture, simply meaning impossibility. What Jesus is saying is it is impossible. It is, it is categorically impossible for a man or woman who trusts in their riches to get them into heaven. They cannot get into heaven if their hope and if their trust is not in Jesus. Riches and wealth cannot buy you a place in the kingdom of God. There's only one name under heaven by which mankind is saved, and it's not Benjamin Franklin who's on a $100 bill. It's not the name of your bank. It's not the name of your retirement fund. It's not the name of the Folgers can that has all your cash in the backyard. There's only one name that gets you into heaven. It's trust in Jesus alone. And Jesus makes it very clear. Look again at verse 24. Notice what Jesus calls his disciples. That's not by accident. What's he called them? Children. So in our scenario, in the first, who were the ones that approached Jesus with humble dependence? It was children. So Jesus is saying, okay, in light of all this, disciples, I'm teaching you something very important. You have to be like children. You have to come to me in humble dependence. And so, by calling them children, he's saying, don't be like that prideful, independent person who relies on their own wealth. Be the kind of disciples who come to me in humble dependence. Verse 26, we read that they were exceedingly astonished and they said to Jesus, then who can be saved? Like, what? Who can be saved? In the Jewish mind, wealth was a direct correlation to God's blessing. And that was taught by the rabbis. That's what everybody believed. And so they're exceedingly astonished because what Jesus is saying here is way outside of the accepted teaching on the issue of wealth. I read this week to the Jewish mind, it was inconceivable that riches could be a barrier to the kingdom. And I, and I, I was talking to Pastor Mitch here a few minutes ago, but like, Christians get uncomfortable when teaching about money comes up. It's funny, you know, over the years of doing ministry, you, you have people in your office and they'll talk with you about all sorts of things, really hard things. It's their sex lives, their addictions, their, their past, their mistakes. But we just get uncomfortable when we start to talk about issues of money. And I get it. There have been lots of abuses and lots of false teachings that, that center around the issue of money in the church. I came from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and, and in Milwaukee, it's a large city, and in some of the, the, the neighborhoods where there was more poverty, where people were just desperate, and just desperate because they've been living in poverty for generations, 
the, the prosperity teaching became very prevalent in a lot of those churches because desperate people wanting out, wanting to get out of the poverty would be attracted to these churches that told them that God wants you to be wealthy. And God will bless you if you give us more money. God will bless you. If you give us money, God will give you money. And so many people were so taken advantage of and lied to and manipulated by, by charlatans who would stand in the pulpit and take advantage of people's desperation for financial gain. So there's people who have been deeply wounded by that. There's also, even if you aren't from a prosperity gospel church culture, I, I just know that if you've been in church for any length of time, chances are you at some point or another have seen the mismanagement of money by a church. You faithfully tithe and you see foolishness. You've seen gross excesses that you question. Chances are, if you've been in church for any length of time, maybe you've even heard manipulative teaching um, around the issue of money. It's interesting to me that, you know, there's a lot. I mean, Jesus says a lot about giving. He teaches a lot about money, and we need to listen to those teachings deeply. And I've been in church leadership for a long time, and I know how tempting it is to just take the teaching on money and then directly make a link to the ministry of the project you as a church want to accomplish, as if that's the only way that Christians can steward their finances for God's glory. And God wants you to give money, so give to the building fund and make it happen. I'm like, I get it. Like, I understand. I've been in capital campaigns, and you're trying to raise money, but I just know how that can just create all this sort of baggage in our hearts and in our minds. I'm mindful, I'm mindful of just some of the other teachings of Jesus on money. In the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's a hard teaching. Jesus finished in the Sermon on the Mount by saying, No one can serve two masters, for they, are either, they will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We're so conditioned in our culture to think about wealth as the great advantage. I mean, we all want more money. We all, want, we all need more money. We all have things that we want to do, projects we want to do. All of us do. We're so conditioned to think of, of wealth as a great advantage, but Jesus here says that wealth is actually a handicap. It's actually a hindrance. It's a stumbling block. It's a speed bump. We think of the rich as being overprivileged. Jesus says the rich are underprivileged. And again, going back to my time in a larger city, planting a church in a neighborhood that was below the poverty line, I saw a, a more honest and more sincere and most pure and more pure pursuit of Jesus from people who don't have a whole lot of physical possession because there's not a lot in the way. When we have lots of physical possession, there's, it's hard for us. So the question is for us today, how, how are we to think about wealth? I think for starters, we need to recognize, and I think we all could recognize this, that wealth has a corrosive effect on the soul. It's very hard to convince someone who has it all. It's very hard to convince people that are uber wealthy that God requires humble dependence or helpless dependence. Like, what are you talking about? I'm not, I'm not helpless. I got everything I ever want and more. Remember what Jesus said to the church of Laodicea in, uh, in Revelation 3, and really he says to the church today, Revelation 3, 17, Jesus said, I say to you, he said, rather, for you say, I am rich, I have po- prospered, and I need nothing. But you're not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. And so I think when we come to this text, and I know for me personally, it's easy to see the fault in the rich young ruler and be like, oh, that idiot, he just didn't get it. It's much harder for me to see myself in the rich young ruler, but I think we need to see ourselves in the rich young ruler today. Wealth can give us a false sense of self-sufficiency, which is the direct relative of prideful independence. You know, I could stand up here and we could just point the finger at the ultra-wealthy or the ultra-rich, but the reality is every, every one of us in this room is wealthy. Did you know that, so the average income in America right now is, per household is like 74000 and change per household in America. That's the average household income. You know, and that's different, of course. It costs more to live on the West Coast versus the Midwest, whatever. Across the country, that's the average income. Did you know if, you're ma- if your household makes $74,000 a year on the average, uh, you are part of the 0.17 wealthiest people in the world? Did you know if you make $75,000 a year in your home, you are wealthier than 99.83% of everybody else on the planet? Did you know the average income of people on the planet Earth is $2,000 a year? So if you're making $74,000 a year, it's like about 33 times more than the, than the average income. 
So we're the 1%. We're, we're, not, we're not even the 1%. Not even the 0.5%. We're the 0.17%. We are the most wealthy people on the planet. So this applies to us. It applies to me. I tell you what, I was talking to our staff earlier. When I bought a house in Medford, honestly, I struggled. I'm so thankful I could buy a house, but it's like, how stupid. The money you have to spend for a house on the West Coast is just stupid. And I'm like, I, I, my wife and I are sitting there like, I, this is sinful. Like, this is just sinful. Like, how do you buy a house here and sleep at night? So I recognize, I mean, this, I'm the rich young ruler. You're the rich young ruler. This is for us, this text today. If you've ever been to a developing nation, you know exactly how wealthy we are. For those of you that have been in Uganda, you know exactly how wealthy we are, right, Fred? You've been there. So chances are every one of us in this room is the rich young ruler. So what is, what is, what is Jesus saying to us, really? I'm not here to—this isn't about shame. What is, what is the teachings of Jesus for us today? One of the markers of discipleship that we've identified as a church at Heritage, actually the first one on the survey, if you've not ever taken the survey, is, is God-honoring stewardship. Now listen, we've got these new bulletins. On the back of the bulletin, there's the, the, the second from the bottom, it says take our discipleship survey. You can just, you can put your little phone over that. If you haven't taken our discipleship survey, we've identified eight areas of discipleship that'll help you grow as a disciple of Christ. Would you please take time to do that? Take this home, and when you have 10 or 15 minutes, take the survey. And the first area that we're going to lean into in that survey is the area of God-honoring stewardship. This is a part of it. A disciple has God-honoring stewardship. And so you're going you're to be asked to reflect on three questions as you think about stewardship in your life. You're going to be asked to reflect on this question. I see God as the giver and ultimate authority over my time, talent, and treasure. Is that true of you? You're going to be asked the question, am I an excellent steward of, my, of the gifts God has given me? My time, my money, my talents, my physical body, my family possessions, etc. The last question you're going to be asked to consider is, I joyfully leverage the gifts of time, talent, money, physical health, family, and possessions for the glory of God for the good of the kingdom. It's an opportunity for each one of us to think deeply about how are we using our wealth? What do we do with our wealth? And what we do with it will determine the spiritual health of ourselves and our families. I appreciate the wisdom of Kent Hughes. I've read through his commentaries. We've been teaching through Mark. And when it comes to avoiding the pitfalls of wealth, Kent Hughes says there's two things we need to do as Christians. He uses the words divestment and investment. In other words, he says we must divest ourselves as Christians from dependence on our wealth and we must invest our wealth sacrificially into God's work. We must divest ourselves from dependence on our wealth and we must invest our wealth sacrificially for God's work. In other words, we are, you and me as Christians, the thing we can wrestle with today is this. What would it look like for you and me to detach ourselves from trust in our wealth? What would it look like for you and me for decup- to, to decouple ourselves from dependence on our wealth. Because when we're depending on our wealth, we're not depending on Jesus. And then what would it look like for us as the the 0.17%, what would it look like for us to give sacrificially? Not to the church. This isn't about, I'm not trying to get money for a program here. It's not about building the brand of heritage. So, So hear me when I say that. What would it look like for us as the church to give sacrificially wherever God would lead? What would it look like for you and your family to give as God calls you to give, to give your gifts, to give your, your wealth for the sake of the kingdom, to give back to God for the great blessings he's already given back to you? What would it look like for you to give till it hurts, to give where it alters your lifestyle, to give sacrificially? What would it look like for you to stop by the Foundation of Hope Center and think of these kids, man, these kids got nothing. No, they have nothing. They're the, they're the people that are making $2,000 or less a year. Like, what would it look like for us to just, or to just lift our eyes up and just look at the needs around us? I don't know. I think a good test for each and every one of us would be to go home and spend a considerable amount of time saying, what would happen in my spiritual life if it, was all, if it was all taken away? How would I respond spiritually if Vladimir Putin drops an atomic bomb or a nuclear bomb in Ukraine the world spins out of control, the U.S. dollar collapses, and my entire portfolio becomes just numbers on a screen, and I have no wealth. What would happen in my spiritual life if that were to happen? If all my investments, if all my wealth were suddenly taken from me, and all I had was my family and my God, what would happen? And so these disciples, they, they are just astonished. They, they're exceedingly astonished. They said, who, who can be saved? 
And Jesus looked at them in verse 27 and he said, with man it's impossible. You can't save yourself. With man it's impossible. Salvation is impossible for the rich man, but also salvation is impossible for the poor man. Apart from the work of God, apart from the work of God through his son Jesus, salvation is impossible for both the rich and the poor, for the white collar, for the blue collar, for the Jacksonville millionaire and the Bear Creek transient. Salvation is impossible apart from the work of God. But not with God, for all things are possible with God, Jesus says. All things are possible with God. God has a way in his love for us of stripping us of our pride. It's painful, but it's love. God has a way of revealing our independence to us. He has a way of driving us to our need where we recognize our dependence and it hurts like crazy, but he does it in love because in the kingdom of God, the first will be last and the last will be first. God forces us into that last position so we recognize the value of the kingdom. And so here we are today. And we are to come to Jesus with humble dependence. And the rewards for doing so are immeasurable. Look at the last few verses, verses 28 through 30. Peter, after hearing this, says to Jesus, See, we have left everything and followed you. Verse 29, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So to those who, who live free from the constricting clutches of prideful independence, those who leave the lie of I can have my best life now, to those who follow Jesus wherever it leads, Jesus says there will be a, a payback that is a hundredfold. Not a hundred times, not a hundred percent more, a hundred times more. So for every house that is left behind in your pursuit of Jesus, a hundred doors open to a hundred new houses. For every relationship that is left behind in your pursuit of Christ, a hundred more intimate, more beautiful relationships are made available to you. We so often, when we, when we hear about the call of Christ on our life, we, begin to, we, we go to the calculator in our mind, we begin to think about what's this going to cost us, and we, 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 we obsess ourselves with what we're going to lose in pursuit of Jesus without regard for what we gain. Like the pridefully independent young man, we hear the call of Christ to go or to give or to, or to serve or to speak or to sacrifice, and, and we look at what it'll cost, and we begin to add it all up on our mind and we're tempted to walk away disheartened. All we can see is what we might lose, but Jesus makes it very clear. Whatever it may cost us to follow him, he has a hundredfold reward for us in store. And when we get that, when we get that, that we, it's not about us, we, when we get that we cannot outgive the giver of all good things, we're, we're invited to then decouple ourselves from the things of this world. We're freed up to, to live lives of love, to embrace the way of the kingdom. Verse 31, but many who are first will be last and the last first. We are invited to come to Jesus with humble dependence because it doesn't matter what you have in your bank account. That's the only way to come to him, in humble dependence. Listen, as we chatted about this as a staff on Thursday, I'm aware, and I, I certainly have memories in my life. There, there may be some of you here today who are living with the memory of the walk of shame where God presented you with an opportunity to follow him in humble dependence I don't know what the situation was you do if you're sitting here and you walked away in prideful dependence or prideful independence you, maybe you have a story in your mind you knew that God was calling you to follow him in a sacrificial way giving up a lifestyle giving up some money giving up a career giving up a relationship or whatever it is and you made the decision at one point in your life no I'm, I'm going to choose the route of prideful Independence, and you're sitting here today with the memory of that walk of shame heavy on your heart, seared into your brain. Well, today's a new day. We don't know what happened with the rich young ruler who walked away from Jesus. I like to think that ultimately he walked down that road of accumulating more stuff and realized how shallow and empty and hollow and soul-stealing and life-crushing it really was. He walked 100 miles down that dead-end road to realize that Jesus was right all along. And I like to believe that one day that rich young ruler confessed and repented and in humble dependence ran after Jesus until he died. Today is a day for you to confess and to repent and to turn your face to Jesus in humble dependence 
in the kingdom of God, the first will be last, and the last will be first. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm very thankful for the opportunity you've given us to gather in this place and look at this rich text. God, I pray that as we come to you as a church, as we, as we sit under the preached word week in and week out, as we meet and, and gather around uh, the word of God and, and discipleship communities, as we, as we spend personal time uh, in devotion and in prayer and in interacting with the people we love the most, God, my prayer is that as we, as we fix our eyes on you, that you would get bigger. And with each new day that we, we pursue you, that the, our vision of you would enlarge and our vision of self would, would decrease. God, may you increase, may we decrease. God, would you, would you sanctify out the pride in our lives? God, would you do what you got to do in our lives that we would be a humble people who would come to you in utter dependence? And God, I'm mindful of the lyrics of Be Thou by Vision. God, I pray that our prayer would, would be the lyrics of this song, Riches I heed not, nor vain empty praise, thou mine inheritance, now and always, thou and thou only, first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure, thou art. We love you, Jesus. Have your way with us.